This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by GoGo. Introducing SmartShield, GoGo's exclusive customer membership program that protects your best in-class, in-flight Wi-Fi system. GoGo's SmartShield membership provides greater cost control, exclusive discounts, and peace of mind with equipment protection. Plus, you can still take advantage of savings of up to $35,000 on your GoGo Advance install. Get technology that adapts as you do, and when you order by December 31st, 2021, you'll have until December 31st next year to install and save. Visit gogo.to slash aopa-podcast to learn more. That's gogo.to slash aopa-podcast. This week on Hangar Talk, three unlucky pilots go for a swim in the same week off the coast of Florida. But in the air, Technum gets the P2010 TDI diesel certified. On its way there is the Beechcraft Denali. It makes the first flight. And we're going to take a quick dive into the Gamma delivery reports for this quarter. Ian, are you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, turn back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, Kim Kish. She is a professional pilot, but in the corporate arena, which I know what we talked about last show something like a third of pilots seem to be interested in. So it's going to introduce folks to what that life is like and how to get there. That's right. And Kim and I met each other during AirVenture last summer. And uh, we went on a couple of cool, well, we went on one cool flight together with the Aeroshell team. And she also participated in a women's flight with the AeroStars team. And it gave her a taste of aerobatics. She's going to talk to us a little bit about upset recovery and how aerobatics can make us better pilots. Awesome. Okay, so that'll be later on. But first, let's start with those three pilots who had to go for a swim. Now, this is incredible. You don't, you know, we know airplanes ditch. We don't hear about it terribly often. But for three to happen in one week around the same location, it's like, I don't know, the coast of Florida was cursed because this is I, I just an incredible story. And about 100 miles off the coast of Florida, you know, three pilots Ditched airplanes, as you said, Ian, but um, it's there's some happy endings to this story. Yes, we never want to yep. be involved in a ditching if you could avoid it. But interestingly, one of Icon's more well-known pilots, Janessa Duffy, was near one of the uh, Moonies, well, near one of the airplanes. It was a Mooney. She heard mm-hmm. the distress call. She fired up the Icon, went out into the bay, and basically plucked one of the pilots from the top of, of their aircraft. And I think that's a really interesting uh, story. That's kind of what the Icon is made for, is like right, going right. out and, landings, yeah, yeah. and water landings and getting out of the airplane and you know picking people up. But I don't think she planned to pick up a ditched pilot. No. So that's, you know, you think, well, that's okay. It's warm water. They could have swam there for a little while. But it turns out, I guess there were, what, two people. One had a life jacket. I think the passenger maybe had a life jacket. But then the pilot was just sitting there sort of treading water. And so it's like, man, you got to act fast. And she turns out she had a a life jacket on board, threw it to him. So and then the police boat came and and picked him up. So it's totally happy ending. And I think you know, the, the passenger went onto the police boat and she flew off and that was kind of the end of it. So, uh, just a quick, Hey, let me help you out and see ya. And that's, that's near uh, Peter O'Knight airport in Tampa, which is one of our favorite airports. And we've actually had the yeah. AOPA, you know, regional meets there 
and our fly-ins as well. But yeah, so now why do you think there are several in one week? This is kind of weird. I don't know. It, it really is weird. You don't hear about it that often. And it is, it's one of those things that kind of makes your skin crawl a little bit because you think, oh boy, not something I want to be involved in. The Especially, you know, the picture gets me on the second one. It's a It's the pilot. He's off the coast of Cedar Key, neat little spot on the sort of the nature coast of Florida. He's standing on top of the fuselage. Uh-huh, the fuselage is submerged right. yep, of his V-tail. And he's there. It's like, he's just chilling. You know, he's got his jeans and his boots standing on top of an airplane out in the bay. It's, uh, ugh, gives me the chills thinking about it. That area is a real interesting part of Florida. That's sort of the crook of the, the northwest coast of Florida, Cedar Key. I've actually covered a couple of hurricanes in that area. But Cedar Key is a pretty neat place, and that's a, that's an interesting airport as well. And a lot, lot of outdoor life, a lot of fishing and things like that. But yet again, a bonanza you know, in the water, I mean, what do you do? Yeah, so I, we should say... Because the first thing I would think of with Cedar Key is somebody went off the end of the runway because it's a shorter runway, and that happens, I don't want to say often, but it definitely happens. Uh, this one was actually off the coast by, what, I think half a mile maybe. And uh, the pilot, very lucky, did a nice job, ditched, got out, and uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection boat picked him up, and happy ending. The third was farther south down near Sarasota International Airport. Again, a happy ending. Yeah, that was a pilot of a Piper Cherokee attempting to land at Sarasota Bradenton International Airport, uh, which has a big GA presence. Mm -hmm. And they they also landed in the water there, just uh, not far from several docks. And the pilot, like you said, was uh, found already out of the water and awaiting the arrival of first responders with a throttle control problem, according to the local deputies. And I've actually had a throttle control problem. In a, in a Piper Cherokee 6. Really? What happened? I was much younger. I was really uh, about 12 or 13. It was my dad's Piper Cherokee 6. And what happened, Ian, was uh, I was ta- actually taking a lesson. But, I mean, when you're that age, you really can't. You, you can sort of count it. But, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, sure. But what happened was the cable had been installed incorrectly. And it had an inappropriate bend in the throttle cable and it severed itself but full wide open oh my gosh yeah so and we had just taken off from peachtree decab airport so if you misroute the throttle cable uh, i know from personal experience that there could be a problem with it uh in a cherokee and because it, it goes into that that power quadrant so what did the instructor do? You, you basically take off, you maintain full power all the way around, and then you cut the engine on final, essentially? He did. On, he did. He used a mixture control to cut the engine on final. The the fire trucks were have, had lined uh, both sides of the runway, and, you know, it was pretty exciting. But yeah. we did not need assistance. It was, you know, it was taken care of uh, with uh, just a mixture control and then found out later that it was a misrouting of that throttle cable. Wow. Which is another good reason for you to get with your A&P and make sure that things are right after you get major maintenance done. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. So glad that was a uh, happy outcome for all three pilots. And hopefully we don't see any more swimming piles anytime soon. David, moving on, the Technum, we've talked about this, the P2010. This is the, we'll call it 172-ish, and I hate to say that because I know Technum wouldn't want to hear that, but it's like it's it looks, you know, it's high-wing, four-seat Technum, P2010. The TDI, which is the diesel version, has now been certified by the FAA. Yeah, and the last time we talked about that aircraft, Ian, we talked about the fact that IASA certified it. So we weren't that far behind. And so this CD-170 engine, that's a little bit bigger than the CD-155 engine that we're more familiar with in the uh, Cessna 172 range. With, you know, the Jet A-powered Cessna 172 that um, Jill Tallman and I both had a chance to fly. And that Travis Ludlow flew around the world in a similar model. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But yeah, so it's got a little bit better fuel burn. So you get a little bit better range. And it's interesting because, you know, the diesel world outside of the USA is really big. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's much easier to find Jet A than it is 100 low lead. Which is, I think, when you when you look at international markets, one of the bigger draws here. I mean, interestingly, you know, the guy who was quoted here in the story, Glenn Lawler of Gulf States Aircraft Sales... He sold it a bit on that fuel burn. You know, it's like, hey, it's a couple of gallons less an hour. And I think, okay, you can do the hard math and maybe you'll make back your investment because, you know, diesel is going to be a little more expensive. But really, to me, the the benefit is 
just that FADEC power. Yeah, single lever control. It's less hassle. Push a button, you start the airplane, you monitor the systems, and you're ready to go. Exactly. You know, electronic diagnostics. I mean, all that stuff. That's, you're talking about a modern engine now. It is, and I think that's more in tune with the future of aviation. If you're looking to be a career pilot and you're on a pathway, I think you end up getting a little bit more comfortable with that FADEC type control and the readouts. You know, you're just more familiar with the digital environment. Yeah. I mean, have you ever sat down and thought about how much time we spend in flight training and then definitely after flight training, how much time you've spent thinking about how to operate the engine properly? Right. I mean, it's this whole, you know, Mike Bush has written books about it and it's like people go to seminars about it. And it's it's crazy. Could you imagine doing that for your car? Like no one would ever stand for that. So why do we stand for it for the airplanes? It's crazy. Absolutely not. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, the fi fine tuning of the mixture control and then, yeah. you know, looking at, you don't want to shock cool the engine when you're, you know, going from high to low and, you know, squeaking off some manifold pressure and then added more mixture in. And yeah, it's a lot easier when there's only one thing to deal with. In a flight training scenario to be able to say, Hey, you see this lever, push it all the way forward. When we get up to the, you know, to cruise, pull it back a little bit. And when we descend, pull it back some more. And that's all you have to do. It's like, oh, man, give me that any day of the week. I, I just think that's a much bigger benefit than maybe a gallon or two an hour. But I, I get that they're trying to, you know, sell it economically. Well, speaking of economically, how much is this airplane selling for, Ian? Yeah, what is it? It's something like... Half a million, I guess. Five hundred thousand right? to yeah. five hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars. So, not as expensive as a Cirrus. A little yeah. bit more than a one seventy-two. It is a nice airplane, I will say. Have you seen these in person? Yeah, they're they're they are really technum. They make nice finished airplanes, I will say. Hey, moving on. The Beechcraft Denali. This is the you know. <laughs> Textron and Pilatus are not going to like this. This is the Pilatus-like airplane that Textron is developing under the Beechcraft brand, and it just had its first flight. Yeah, and you know, let's talk about the first flight. It was a long first flight. They had a pretty big shakeout. This aircraft is designed to cruise at up to 285 knots, carrying 1,100 pounds of payload for 1,600 miles in range. And like you said, it is uh, similar to a PC-12. But you and I were talking before we got on the show a little bit about the engine technology, and I think we want to go into that a little bit more. Yeah. The GE Aviation Catalyst engine is something that is, I think, you know, that was the significant part about this flight was the shakeout of that engine. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about the how that engine came to be. Yeah, so, you know, GE says this is the first clean sheet design turboprop in 50 years. Uh, you know, I I think, I don't know the exact details of, of how much of the technology they've taken from Walter, which is, you know, they bought Walter in, in the Czech Republic, and that's what this engine comes from, and they're calling it the GE Catalyst now. So I don't know, could you say, okay, well, this is the Walter engine, and but it's just the GE brand, or is this a, an original GE engine? Does, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. We'll just say it is the first flight of the GE Catalyst engine, and and it it is a big shift, I think, in the market because if you're flying turboprops, these single engine or small multi engine turboprops, the only really new option you've had is is the Pratt PT6. So it it um, it does represent some pretty significant competition, and GE says it'll be twenty percent more efficient than that uh, Pratt engine. So that that is interesting. And thirteen hundred shaft horsepower. With full authority, again, you know, FADEC. Got to have it. Right. Yep. Got to have it. A 105-inch Macaulay five-blade composite propeller. That's yeah. pretty big. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> this, you know, when when Textron announced this airplane, I looked at it and I thought, oh, this is just a PC-12. Like, all I've done is copy Pilatus here. But I think there's a few things that really should be noted about this and a reason it will be successful. One is that engine. It represents a, a choice, right, in the market. The other is the panel, and this is a big deal. I think the Garmin G3000, people obviously, the market has shown, flock to Garmin. They are familiar with Garmin. Maybe they start in the 172 and they work up through. There will be some private owners of these and they'll want Garmin. The Pilatus does not have Garmin and the community sort of just accepts the fact that it's not Garmin. They don't love it. So I think... I think it will pull some people to the airframe simply because of that G3000 panel. And with the Garmin, you can have auto throttle integrated into the yeah. flight controls. And that would mean to me, look into the future, 
that you might end up with auto land on this airplane. Absolutely. Very good point. Yeah. All right. So, hey, let's finish out today with the gamma numbers. We love to talk about this every time it comes out, sort of a, you know, the pulse of the marketplace. And I would say overall, this is really good news. We've got a lot to be hopeful about here. Yeah. I think the gist of the third quarter gamma aircraft shipment and billings report is that turboprops, business jets, and helicopter deliveries were up for the first nine months of 2021. Compared to 2020, but we did a bigger dive than that that we'll get to in a minute. Mm -hmm. But piston aircraft shipments were slightly down, although we've had a really good year so far. We're talking about just the third quarter, but you and I are going to compare 2021 to 2019 in a minute, which I think is going to be pretty significant. Yeah, I agree. They, of course, always are going to talk about year to year, so they're going to talk about 2020. But with all of these numbers from anything, anything from aviation to automakers to anything, it's like you can sort of just throw out 2020 because it was an anomaly. So the, you're right. We did go back and look at 2019. And even there, really good news. In fact, I was really surprised. So what? Let's start with, well, start with the big one. Start with pistons. You want to give us 2021? So 2021 total piston airplane shipments were 330. Ian, take us back to 2019. Yeah, 304. So up in the piston department and maybe would have been even more. I think all of these, well, there should be like a little star disclaimer. If it weren't for supply chain issues. Right. Good point. Numbers could potentially be even higher. And and P. Bunce does talk about that in the press release that it's like all of this is good news, even in the context of supply chain, which could be, and, and labor shortages. So potentially even uh, even could be better. Well, let's look at total turboprop airplanes, and I'm going to give us the third quarter 2021 numbers at 136. You're going to take us back to 2019. 117. So that's up about 17 or 18 aircraft. Yeah, great news. So, uh, Which is about 10% of, of that. My math ain't great, but you know how that goes. So I'm going to take us to uh, 2021 and total turbine airplanes in the business jet category were 310. Yeah, versus 300. So only a small bump there. That one I think we're going to see accelerate rapidly over the next couple of quarters. By all indications, there's a major shortage in the jet market. So yeah, so good news there, but I think we'll see it even more. Helicopters even, which has just been, they've been all over the map. 2019, there were between piston and turbine, 161 delivered in the third quarter. And how are we doing this year? 199 this year, Ian. That's up significantly. That's up oh, like 38 helicopters. Yeah, and awesome. so, yeah, that's a significant jump. And, you know, in the, in the past couple of years that we've been doing the gamma reports on Hangar Tot, we have indicated that helicopters were lagging yeah. behind other segments. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's really good to see them doing, doing better. We always like to go through a few, just top line, see how people are doing. Let's start with Cirrus, who has been, we know, consistently strong. And boy, they they just are on fire, aren't they? Yeah. So let's flip it up a little bit. I'll give the 2019 numbers and you take us to the 2021. So in 2019, they were at 107 aircraft. And what were they at this quarter this year? 144. So that's, Wow, Ian, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. Yep, that's significant. Who else do you like? What about, we like to talk about Diamond. Yep. How are they doing? Well, in 2019, they had 51 deliveries. What did that look like in 2021? 39. So they're they're down a little bit. Yeah, which is which is interesting. They've had a couple of good quarters, so I don't know what's going on there. How about Piper? How's Piper? We love talking about Piper. How's Piper doing? So in 2019, you'll recall we had a really strong training market. Uh, both Piper and, and Taxtron were, were whipping out some airplanes. So in 2019, in this quarter, Piper uh, shipped 62 aircraft. How about now? 72. So that's good. That's up. Yeah, that's really good. Well, before we leave Piper, let's take a look at one segment of Piper. Yeah. Look at the 600. So they built 12 of those this quarter. And they had six 
back in 2019. And that was the one that Tom Horn recently wrote a story on uh, in Turbine Pilot that where he participated in the Autoland technology. Yeah, the Autoland, yes. And that's a pretty expensive aircraft. Yeah, the, and if you look top. at the overall... Yeah, look at the overall numbers of Piper, and uh, they were at fifty-seven million dollars in billings back in in uh, twenty nineteen versus seventy-six now. So wow, that's that's really significant. That's great. Yeah, even though they did add even to their training total because they did well. If you combine the Archer and the Pilot one hundred, which is you know basically it's called the two seat Archer, you're talking about forty-nine total between the two of those. I don't have the numbers for 2019, so I'm going to rely on you. But but 49 seems pretty strong. Yeah, that's great. That's really good. All right, cool. What about what about we go now? We usually like to hit Technum. We were yeah. just talking about them a little while yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. I think in part because they have a really interesting mix portfolio mix. You know, they've got well, they've got the the Traveler now, and of course the P2010, which we just talked about, and then some LSAs. So they let's see in 2021 in this quarter they shipped 44 airplanes and 43 in 2019 so about the same holding their own good textron we know is doing really well their backlog is huge jets especially this quarter they did 136 airplanes well they did 144 airplanes in 2019 but the the billings are different this time around yeah they had 800 million billed in 2019 during that quarter and this quarter compared to 912 so the higher end airplanes making some money there now ian we we got to talk a little bit about the helicopter market because we said it's it's bouncing back a little bit yeah and a lot of that is due to robinson which we love to see they put out the door 59 helicopters this quarter versus 32 back in 2019 that's a lot more almost double and out of that i noticed that robinson shipped 11 of the r66s you know that's the the turbine model mm-hmm. back in 2019 and 19 this quarter so almost double with that that's fantastic good for them cool so yeah good news all around and we'll see you know the year end will be out uh they take a little longer so call it february march next year and uh, we'll definitely hit that again after the new year so David, our guest this week, Kim Kish, really successful corporate pilot. And like you said, you caught up with her at AirVenture, and now she has seen the light on aerobatic flying and upset training. Welcome to the show, Kim Kish. You're talking to us from Chicago. Uh, how's the weather? It's cold, typically. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, it's a winter time as re- we record this. And so, Kim, you're on our program because you are a corporate pilot. Uh, you live in Chicago. We met during AirVenture this year. We shared some awesome adventures uh, doing some aerobatic flight, and we did a little bit of a, of a scholarship tease So tell me a little bit about your background, Kim, and how you got into aviation. Sure. So I always have to say I I chalk up being in aviation because of my father, but it wasn't all fine and dandy as it seems. You know, he really had to push me into it and push me strategically because, you know, you don't want to push your kids to do something they don't want to do. But the short story is my dad pretty much told me I could never become a pilot because he didn't think I was good enough. So naturally with my competitive nature, I had to prove him wrong. And I did. (laughs) You know, you mentioned that I I saw a, a Bose aviation headset a spot that you did. And you mentioned that same exact thing. And that's one reason why I wanted you to, to talk to us today. What's it like being, you know, you hear that over and over again. So you've obviously, you, your dad was saying, well, you know, I don't know if aviation is for you, that kind of thing. But I know you, you grew up in an aviation family. Didn't y'all have a, a, a Piper or a Cherokee or a twin or something like that? We did. Yeah. My dad had a share in a Cherokee six. And so we would do these joint family vacations when I was younger, about elementary school age. So I, I don't want to say I, I took advantage of it, but it was kind of natural to me. So I never questioned being a pilot. It was just something my dad did. And it was a part of my life. Now, is he, is he a professional pilot as well? He is. He's also a corporate pilot. Okay. So that kind of runs in the family. And we do see this a little bit in aviation is that if you're exposed to aviation, 
there's a likelihood that you'll follow in a mentor's footsteps. In your case, I, I know that your dad was a mentor because when we met at AirVenture, I asked you about that. Absolutely. So uh, you learned in, in dad's Cherokee six, which when I was much younger, my old man had a Cherokee six for a while too. And it was, <laughs> it was pretty cool. I loved it. So I have to admit, I was a little bit more spoiled at the time. My dad did have a flight school, so I got the short end of the stick, but I got the short end of the stick flying a Cirrus. So I was a little spoiled. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, how old were you when you started to pursue flight training? I was 15, but like I said, because I always got, you know, when a student canceled or when we had to do a maintenance flight, that's when I got most of my lessons in. So I didn't really start seriously training for, for flight training until I went to Embry-Riddle in 2014. And which campus were you in, uh, Florida or Arizona? I was in Daytona Beach, Florida. Excellent. So you jumped all on it, a little bit of flight school in the background, in the family, which helps a lot. And, uh, but you pursued it professionally and you are a corporate pilot now. I don't know if we can say it on the air, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's in your Bose spot that you, you fly or you had been flying a Gulfstream G550, which is an enormous airplane. Yes. And a, a gorgeous airplane. I've always said, as soon as I found corporate aviation, I was like, I want to fly the biggest, the shiniest, the fastest airplane. And there's no better manufacturer than the Gulfstream, I have to say. I'm a little biased. <laughs> and I am too. I'm from Georgia and they're made in Savannah. So there you go. Um, <laughs> so now um, you went to Embry-Riddle, you, you jumped into, you jumped in the pool into the deep end. And I'm assuming you, you know, got out of school there with uh, all your credentials and ratings and things like that. Correct. How hard, Kim, how hard was it to find a job? It had its challenges, especially because you graduate, you have, I mean, the ink was still wet on my licenses and you, you're jumping into a job market where it's almost endless. You could do pretty much anything. And so I, I would say the hardest part was narrowing down exactly what you wanted to do. And a lot, if not all of my friends at flight school knew they wanted to go to the airlines. So it was an easy question for them. No doubt. I'm going to do my CFI. I'm going to flight instruct. Once I have my hours, I'll apply, I'll interview, I'll get the job. For me, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had an internship with Southwest Airlines and I loved it, but it made me realize that that lifestyle wasn't necessarily for me. I wasn't sure if I wanted to just go to the same cities and fly with a new captain every single time and then wait for my seniority number to go up to upgrade. It just wasn't what I had pictured for my lifestyle. So that's when I really found corporate aviation and specifically through women in corporate aviation and volunteering through them and hearing their stories of traveling around the world in these shiny new airplanes. So when it came to jobs, I, I kind of pictured what I wanted to do in the long run of flying these big shiny airplanes around the world and then saying, okay, what jobs can I apply for now that will help me get there? So I, I pretty much worked backwards. So you are in the corporate environment and I'm, just before we started the interview, you and I were chatting a little bit and I told you I wrote this story and this blew my mind, wrote the story that says that corporate aviation accounts for 37% of all professional pilot positions. And I'll be honest with you, I had no idea it was that high. That's over a third of all pilot positions. And Kim, you just said a second ago that the folks at Embry-Riddle, most of them went to the airline environment. Absolutely. And I have to tip my hat to Embry-Riddle for that because that's how their 141 program is set up to make you the most standardized, perfect cookie cutter airline pilot. And a lot of my friends are fantastic airline pilots. So it really is the perfect path for that. But I always said I was a little bit of the black sheep because here are my friends knowing what they want to do. And I'm applying for these random jobs all across the country, anywhere from banner towing to sightseeing to charter companies and just hoping someone will give me the light of day. Now, you did land on your feet in a pretty good way. Let's talk a little bit about that corporate environment. I'm looking at it from the 10,000-foot view. Can you tell us and tell our listeners, sort of explain to us, what is different about being a corporate pilot, a professional corporate pilot, versus being in the airlines? And we talked a little bit about the cookie-cutter kind of atmosphere that some schools have. But what are the advantages to being 
a pilot in the corporate world? I think there are so many advantages to being a corporate pilot. And to look at it from the big picture for a second, it's way more customer oriented because we are at the mercy of our customers' schedules and what they want because there is no scheduled service. They are our schedule. So they can change their minds anytime, really, in the air, on the ground, before, after, whatever the case may be. So when I realized I really loved customer service after working in an FBO and then working for Southwest, that's what really led me to the corporate world of, I want to be a name, not a number. I want someone to know me as Pilot Kim or, oh, that's my my captain or my first officer and have a relationship with my passengers. And thankfully, I'm, I've always been at companies where I've had that, even if it is a charter company, you know, they still see your name on the trip sheet. They know who you are. And, you know, if they're sincere passengers, most of the time they'll greet you by your name. And it's, it's a really special feeling. But that is real different, you know, getting to know the passengers. And oftentimes you might have to schlep some of the luggage into the airplane, prep the coffee machine and everything else. I know there are other other staff available for that, but nonetheless, it falls on the pilot or the co-pilot to make sure everything is working right. You have to have that one-on-one FaceTime with people. Now, Now, what if you're in a bad mood? Oh, you got to fake it till you make it. That's what you got to (laughs) do. I mean, it sucks to say, but yeah, we always have those bad days where, you know, you don't want to talk to anyone. You'd rather just get in, fly, do your job and go home. But for me, it's that bigger purpose of I am ultimately a part of a a bigger mission that I don't even know what is. Because sometimes you know why you're going there. Sometimes you don't. But to know that you saved either the company or that person Time and sometimes money, necessarily not the case, but time equals money. So if you are, if I could help for the greater good, I'm happy. And you you have to have that purpose in order to propel you through those bad days. Okay. So in the background, you have to know that you're really doing something that you're on a mission. You're really on a mission to make things better. Absolutely. Okay. Now, one of the advantages that I learned about the corporate world was that if you're a corporate pilot, a lot of times you can be based in a city. That where you where you basically want to be based, you don't have to start your day. Say you're in the airline environment and you work for a major airline. A lot of times you might be living, say, in Nashville, Tennessee, and have to actually start your day in New York City because that's where your route is. Yeah. So tell me about the advantages maybe of being a corporate pilot and being based somewhere where you want to be. Yeah, well, I think you were spot on with that because you can choose, you can kind of create the life and the lifestyle that you want based on your schedule. Sometimes you have hard days off, sometimes you don't. And it just kind of depends on the company. Right now, I have a schedule where I'm primarily on call, but I have managers that understand that our life is not based on this job and they recognize work-life balance. And a lot of the times it's more of a question rather than a demand. And when there is that mutual respect, you're more likely to want to do it for either your company or your managers or even the passengers themselves. So sometimes you don't know where you're going to go or when you're going to go. Now, how does that, so there's a negative to this. I mean, I could see a definite negative during the holidays, say you've made plans and you're going to visit with your family for Thanksgiving or Christmas. And then the client wants to go to, let's just say Paris. What happens? The client wants to go to Paris. You got to go to Paris. And I always tell my family and friends, because if you're not in aviation, you don't understand that. What do you mean? It's Thanksgiving. It's Christmas. You can't miss this, but it's all about perspective. So Yes, Christmas Day may be on December 25th, but if I'm gone and I'm in Paris on December 25th, why don't when I come back or before I go, we have Christmas on December 20th or December 30th. I really think it's, again, it's about creating that life that you want. And as long as the people around you are understanding, you really can make that whatever you want it to be. So I guess the point is that you have to be a little bit more flexible. Yes, Okay. Now, so you're on call, basically. You're in Chicago. I see the Chicago skyline a little bit behind you there. That's uh, that's pretty awesome. Now, you grew up in that area, correct? I didn't. I actually grew up about 20 miles northwest of White Plains Airport in New York. Oh, did you? Okay. Okay. So how long have you been in Chicago? A little over a year now. 
And what do you like about it? Oh my gosh. I love that Chicago is a little bit of everything because we have the Midwest nice, which honestly took me a little bit getting used to from being New York. I'm used to people not holding doors or saying hello, but it's nice. It's warm. It's fuzzy. And then you have the cleanliness of the city, which I personally think is much cleaner than Manhattan. And then in the summer, you have the river, you have the lake, you have beaches, you have everything. You know, it's it's such a revolving city, in my opinion. It's a beautiful environment. Now, can you tell us what airports you normally fly in or out of? We don't fly into any of the major airports. We're mostly in smaller outskirt airports, but thankfully, no O'Hare, usually not midway. So I feel very lucky to, you know, have a quiet airport where we're based. We can go in and out. No questions asked. Okay, good. So now I'm going to hit you with a couple of quick questions. What's your favorite airport to fly into or out of so far? So in flying the Gulfstream, I can't fly there anymore because it's for turbo props only. But my favorite airport is Billy Bishop in Toronto. It's just, oh, yeah. it's a gorgeous airport. You fly in over the, the water. The city is right there. It's technically international because it's Canada. It's, I loved it. It was so much fun. I went there a couple of times. Yeah, we actually have a flight that we're uh, scheduling up to to go to Toronto for lunch. So uh, that, that could be a future story for AOPA. We're going to go to Toronto for lunch. Billy Bishop is on a little island right across from the Toronto skyline. And I'm sure that the approach is just phenomenal. Especially on a clear day. Beautiful. All right. Uh, what airport would you not want to fly into as a corporate pilot? What, what, what gives you the heebie-jeebies? There's a couple, but some days I love going, some days I don't. But Teterboro, because some days it's a madhouse. You're you're in the Congo line waiting between, you know, sometimes 15 to 30 different airplanes. And it's the Northeast. You have cranky controllers sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's that's true. But now, but now you said you grew up in New York, so you ought to be able to handle some of that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You learn the tips and tricks. You know who's working that day. So <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. That sounds good. Well, let's talk a little bit more about some other things that are near and dear to your heart. When we met this summer, we we met during a scholarship promo, and that was really interesting. I'm glad that we had some time together. We also got to fly with the Aeroshell team. That was really cool. I had never been in one of those T6s with those guys before. That was awesome. So what did you think of that flight? Oh my gosh. I mean, I think I, I think you saw the pictures and videos I posted, but my mouth is open the whole time because I'm I'm in awe, I'm smiling, I'm probably drooling a little bit too. It's it was so surreal. And especially when you're in formation doing loops, there's really nothing like it. So that gave you a little bit of a taste of aerobatics, which is not your normal forte. Correct. And I, I know you recently pursued some upset training. Tell us a little bit about upset training. I loved upset training because it's a training I hope to never use in my career, but I'm so thankful I have it. And I would say that really the biggest thing I wanted to take away from the training is what is my reaction when I'm in a bad scenario? So essentially we go up, we went in an extra 300 airplane, so similar to what the Aerostars fly. And you'll go up, you do some basic maneuvers just to get you used to the G-forces. You know, what does two Gs feel like? What am I pushing for? Things like that. And then essentially, sometimes they just flip you upside down and then they say, all right, what are you going to do? And it, it was really great for me because I had, I'm not a CFI, so I'd never done spin training oh. or, yeah, or anything like that. So for me, I was really proud of myself. We were actually in slow flight. You know, it was the first flight of the day. We just got up. He said, all right, do some slow flight, you know, give me a turn. And I turned too much and stalled the airplane. And he didn't have to tell me. I just immediately recovered. And I, right then and there, I felt like any penny we paid for it, it really was worth it. How'd you recover that extra? What was that? What do you remember the basic things to do to, I know it was pair basically, you know, pulling your power back, you know, you're leveling the wings, right. you know, hard right to the other side, you know, and unload the wing. I can, I can simplify that. Yep. Push, roll, power. Push, roll, power. That's what I kept saying to myself. Push, roll, power. I like it. Break the stall, level the wings, fix your power. And you know, you brought up one thing uh, real quick that I want to clarify. So you went up with the Phillips Aerostars team and that was a, like a women's day event at AirVenture. 
because normally there's a women venture on that day. And this past year, because of coronavirus, it was modified a little bit. And so the Phillips folks are really cool. Um, I want to reach out in, in, to them and give them a shout out. Tell us a little bit about the outreach that we were doing that day. Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, the the overall women venture event was canceled. So Rochelle with iHeart Flying um, and Lindsay Costable decided, well, why don't we do a flight to commemorate women pilots? And that's exactly what we did. So it was an all-female flight. We went up with the Aerostars and, and just enjoyed the day and just kind of embraced aviation for what it is. It's fun. It's It's freedom. It's it's all of those good feelings you get from being in an airplane, especially being upside down. Yeah, I I was uh, I didn't go with y'all on that flight. I was there to document a little bit about uh, what y'all were doing on the ground. But I was on a flight with you in another airplane when we were with the Aeroshell team. And that was really neat. I was with Jimmy Fordham, the slot pilot. And I will never forget looking over to the right and you were uh, off the wing and you are were just like your face was just a glow. I could tell right then and there that you were going to jump on this type of training. I had to. And I, I think I said it to you once we landed, I said, from this day forward, I promise I'm taking aerobatic lessons. So as soon as I did the upset recovery training, I had to tell you, I'm like, I did it. I, I, I promise I'll do it again because this is, this has to be in my future. It's, it's, I loved it. It really, it, it, I think aerobatics really makes you a better pilot too, because you you feel the airplane. You're very tactical and skillful with every ounce you put on the flight controls. So you really have to think about what the airplane's doing, what you're doing to the airplane. So from that moment forward, I was hooked. So that appeals to you, and I get it. Um, and that helps us all be better pilots because you're feeling the airplane a little bit more. You're understanding the characteristics. You can feel when the wing is being loaded and unloaded. It's that tactile difference that we sometimes that sometimes we lack when we're going from point A to point B. Now, how can this how can it make us a better pilot? That we talked a little bit about the upset training. I took some spin training when I was finishing up my private pilot certificate, which you did not need to and still don't need to do. Um, but I felt like that was really important for me. How important is something like that for for the average pilot? I think 100% important uh, for any pilot, whether you're a GA pilot, a business aviation pilot, an airline pilot. Um, unfortunately, we know history repeats itself. So when we look back at these incidents and accidents and say, oh, this could have been prevented, you know, I think it's, it's unfortunately, aviation is expensive, but you know, pay the price, get the training done, see how you're going to react when you are upside down. Even when you're in an unusual attitude, you're not necessarily upside down. You're just maybe darting towards the ground or a, moments away from stalling. Those are moments that could save your life and someone else's life. So I, I absolutely am a huge advocate for this kind of training. So recognize something like that is coming. And then with the proper training, you know how to combat that and get things back on the up and up. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about something that I saw in that Bose spot that you did. And it's about female aviators, which we talked a little bit about a second ago. You mentioned it at the beginning of the show that it was a little bit of an uphill battle for you. Unfortunately, it still is for a lot of folks. Um, the number of females in aviation, we need to grow that above the 7% that it has been at historically for the past few years. What can we do to grow that number? I think in order to to get more women and minorities in general in aviation, we need to normalize it. And what I mean by that is, you know, I have so many people come up to me and it's, it, they have the best intentions. And, you know, once we start talking, oh, I'm a pilot. Oh, my gosh, congratulations. You know, like they it's not normal for them. So they they want to in some way overcompensate for it and, you know, uh, give you attention, which is fabulous. Thank you for, for wanting to do that. But until it's normal, I don't, I think it's going to be intimidating for people to want to join. And the other thing I always say is ed education and advocacy. We talked about it before. My father was in aviation and that's how I found it. And even then he had to, you know, give me a good kick in the behind to, to get it to get the ball rolling. So if I could be a voice for someone who doesn't have family members in aviation, then I think, you know, that would be a fabulous way to get people into aviation to say, look, I did it. 
here's how you can. And then giving them the resources of scholarships and mentors and networking events, opportunities through different nonprofits. You know, that's how we can normalize this and say, listen, this is a path for you if you so choose to do it. So exposing folks to the fact that, that there is an aviation career that they might be able to pursue is one thing. You mentioned, let's not forget all the scholarships that are available. AOPA has, we gave um, gave away a million dollars worth of scholarships last year. We also have women in aviation. We have you know, dozens of other organizations. You, know, you mentioned it as well, uh, I Heart Flying, which is another scholarship opportunity for, especially for women. Now, the other thing you mentioned in that bow spot was that you are a young person, and I think that that's not a strike against folks, but it seems like some other people that might have been in the business for a while might not think that way. Explain that to me. Why would an older pilot not want you know, like fresh blood, you know, or someone who has newer techniques and possibly even better training? And let's face it, look at all the information we have at our fingertips today, uh, you know, digitally and, and with flight planning and things like that. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I could spend a whole podcast talking about this one topic, but the two major points I think you just addressed as well. I think my generation grew up at a time where we are just light years ahead of where people had to start. And so naturally we do have that advantage and we have a lot to give. We have new ideas and not necessarily just to come in and change things for the, the heck of changing things, but for more efficient practices and ultimately to, to better the operation. But the other thing is too, I think many industries can relate to this, but there's that corporate ladder and there's that feeling of, well, you have to earn it. And I think you still have to earn it, but there are different ways other than time to earn things. I've been very very lucky. Actually, not necessarily lucky. I don't necessarily like that word, but I've been very fortunate in my career to have people who've believed in me. And that's really what this industry needs. And when I speak about mentors and opportunities, this is really what I'm talking about. You know, I don't think someone needs a four-page resume to say, look, I can do it. I think people have good foundations. And as long as they have potential and someone can see that and has the time and energy to mentor them and to lead them into a successful path, you can invest in those people. Just like my boss has invest in, invested in me as a young individual and still constantly mentoring me and guiding me into the path that they see where I can fit. As you mentioned, mentorship, that's key. You had your dad uh, as a young person, you had your dad to be a, a mentor to you. And there are myriad other folks that helped you and me as well, you know, in our aviation pursuits. Well, Kim, how can folks follow along on your aviation adventures? Tell us a little bit about your social presence. Yeah. So I am on Instagram, just Kim Kish. I use it to advocate for corporate aviation and honestly, just being yourself too. Don't change who you are just because you're on social media. But also I love using LinkedIn. I use that to promote different scholarships, how to apply for scholarships, where to apply for scholarships, and any and in between nook and cranny of scholarships. So I'm Kimberly Kish on LinkedIn if anyone would like to connect and follow me there as well. So if we follow you on LinkedIn, we'll know a little bit more about scholarship opportunities and hopefully even more scholarship opportunities for young females too. Absolutely. And recently I, I came up with a scholarship series where it's four different parts and I narrow in on different topics of scholarship. So your essay, your letters of recommendation. I even interviewed a scholarship winner for the Women in Corporate Aviation Scholarship and I had her give me my give tips and tricks on how to win a scholarship. You know, that is so important is learning how to apply for the scholarships and just, you know, getting your best foot out, the best foot forward out there and really writing that. Usually it's not, it's not really a cover letter, but it's a scholarship letter fine tuned to what that exact scholarship is. That's so critical. And also I think that folks look at it for, they look for a more well-rounded person. A lot of the times when you're talking about scholarships, not just a, a brainy person and they're not someone, well, we, you know, we would definitely want someone who has a, a financial need, but if when you combine all that and you have that, that power, you know, that, that burning desire inside of your heart to be an aviator, I think that goes a lot, a long way with a lot of the scholarship committees. 
Exactly. I think your last point was perfect. You want someone with the burning desire, the passion and the need. And those people are out there and you can see it in their resumes. And then unfortunately you get to their essay and it's just flat. You're like, well, where's that passion? You know, I can see it through your hard work, but if you don't tell me, I can't reward you for it. So unfortunately we see so many great candidates and their applications just fall short. So I want to make sure those deserving people know that they are deserving and they have a chance to win. They just need help in certain areas. Well, I'm looking forward to the scholarship series and we'll definitely take a look at that on LinkedIn and let our folks know. Kim, what's next for you in aviation, uh, putting your thinking cap on or staring at that crystal ball? Oh, gosh, what is next? So this is a question I've been pondering for a while because, quite frankly, I'm in my dream job. Okay. I'm 25, and I hope to be here forever. So what's next for me, I think, is really getting back to my GA roots. I would love, love, love to look into either aerobatic flights or just GA flying in general and and really getting back to the reason why I started in aviation. I think that's great. I think that's something that we can all aspire to do a little bit more GA flying when you have time, when you're not on call in the corporate world. Kim, thank you very much for hanging out with us today and talking a little bit about corporate aviation, a little bit about scholarships, a little bit about how other folks can get started in aviation and that desire to open aviation up to a more diverse population and to get more people involved in aviation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and letting me share my stories. All right. Well, we hope to hope our paths will cross uh, in person again at the next air venture. But until then, thanks again for joining me on Hangar Top. Thank you. All right, David, really cool that you got to talk to Kim. I, I cannot help. I This is so petty of me. I'm going to say it anyway. I cannot help but just feel insanely jealous of this younger, I can say younger because she's slightly younger than I am, of this younger generation because, man, I would have killed for those opportunities in flight school. I mean, it was like post 9-11. It was just not happening. And the opportunities these days are just incredible. Yeah, there are a lot of opportunities in the corporate world, you know, and Kim's a great example of that, flying a Gulfstream 550, and uh, her future looks golden to me, and she was very encouraging, Ian, about having other young folks get involved in aviation, but she did talk, like you heard, a little bit about, you know, some of the older school pilots, you know, thinking that she's a female and she's younger, but she's just as capable and confident as uh, as others, and, and I think adding that um, that upset training is really going to be a key thing for her and her tool belt. So of course you wouldn't want to do that in a corporate jet, but no, knowing how to get out of no. a, knowing how to get out of that would be a good idea. Yeah, very much so. Okay. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen, And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget. You can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.